I wanted to show you one verse from the beginning of the gospel account of John, one of the closest friends of Jesus, because this is how he describes the fact that Jesus was here in the flesh to be with us. He says, and the word became flesh. Word is one of his names for Jesus. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in case you didn't know this, that word dwelt, when it says that he dwelt among us, in the Greek that is eskenosen. It's a verb that means to tabernacle. So a skein would be a tent. You turn that into the verb, he, he tented with us. Jesus built a tent here in this place that God could dwell in our midst. So we hear tabernacle, and especially as we're going through numbers, we're thinking like the tabernacle. But very simply, that word tabernacle is just a word for tent. A dwelling place that can be set up, torn down, moved, set up, torn down, moved. And in Numbers 29, today, we come to something called the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this becomes not just an interesting metaphor, but it actually carries forward thousands of years, both of remembering, but also of expectation of promise. So if you remember, in Numbers chapter 29, we are right in the middle of the month of Tishri, this big holiday season, this holy day season for God's people. And the first day of the month, Rosh Hashanah, right, the head of the new year, that was the Feast of Trumpets. When they would hear that sound of the trumpets as an awakening for the complacent soul. A few days later, they would come to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So in between there would be that solemn time of reflection, of repentance, of preparing for that Day of Atonement when God would make them at one with him again through forgiveness. And then they have just a few days to prepare for the Feast of Tabernacles. And you notice when you look at this calendar, this is 2022, so like you'll see this on your calendar at home. When Rosh Hashanah pops up in a couple of months, you say, I know what that is. Notice the Feast of Tabernacles is eight days long. It's an eight-day celebration, and seven of them are a feast. So as we come to the book of Numbers, as we come to chapter 29, we're going to continue with verse 12 as he begins to celebrate and describe this feast. So it says in verse 12, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, I love the phrase that it has here, keep a feast. But there's more going on there. You, you've heard us talk sometimes about how in the Hebrew language, when they really want to make a point, they will reduplicate the language. They'll basically say the same word twice in a row for emphasis. So when you see that word feast, that is the word hag. Like H-A-G, basically. It looks like hag, but it's not hag. It's hog. And then they make a verb out of that, hagotem. So that what he's saying is not just, oh, and don't forget to have a feast. He's saying, no, I want you to hagotem a hog. I want you to feast on this feast. I want you to celebrate this celebration. Feast this festival 
with the Lord. This is a big deal. This is all out. This is not a couple hours on one afternoon. We are going to do this all week long. We are going to feast, a feast to the Lord. And that is the first invitation that I want us to hear from God today. That God is inviting you and I to feast with the Lord as the founder of the feast. You see, when God presents a feast like this, it's not just like lunch today. Right? The idea is that God is with us. That this is a feast we celebrate with him. And so his tabernacle is a representation of that, right? That there's a physical place in the middle of the people that they can point to and say, see, God is with us. And so as they celebrate this, God is going to describe for them things that they remember, but he's also going to begin to hint at things that they are looking forward to. In fact, the way that Leviticus describes this same thing in Leviticus 23, because again, like, Numbers has all of these holidays, but it focuses almost entirely on the offerings that are made. So sometimes it helps to jump over to Leviticus, jump over to Exodus or Deuteronomy, get some of the other details. Leviticus says, you shall dwell in booths, it's the word for tabernacles, seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that's the remembrance piece, right? We sit here this morning, we take a, a, a little wafer and a little cup, we remember the body and the blood broken and shed for us. It's important for us to remember what God has done to set us free. Same thing with the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, I want you to go out, I want you to dwell in booths because I want you to remember. You were captives. You were slaves, but I redeemed you. I brought you out. Remember the tabernacles? Remember the tents that you all lived in in the wilderness? And I was with you every step of the way. It reminds us that he is still the same God. So you can see here probably an ancient example of what this would have looked like. Now, other places in the Old Testament are very specific about what materials they're supposed to use. And so this is what one of those tabernacles for the festival would have looked like. Temporary structure, easy to put up, easy to take down, but that they would do this every year for seven days. They would go out and live in something like this, even once they moved into the land and had permanent homes. For those seven days, you put up something like this and go live in it to remember that season where God brought them out of Egypt. In fact, they will still celebrate this today. So here you can see a modern example. This is in Jerusalem. Somebody who doesn't have ground floor property, so they built it on the balcony. Little different looking structure, but the same kind of materials. That's the same kind of wood as you saw in the other picture. You can see a little girl who's peeking out the window. And for seven days, instead of living in the apartment, you live in your booth, in your tabernacle to remember what God has done for them. And so that's an invitation for us as well. That that reminder of everything that God has done for us, that you are no longer a captive, that in Christ you are no longer a slave to sin, but that in our freedom, now we actually get to have parties. You don't get a seven-day festival as a slave in Egypt. But because of the freedom that God brings, they can not only celebrate, but they can celebrate with him. And so look at verse 13. It begins to describe 
how these offerings are going to go. It says, You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs in their first year. They shall be without blemish. Their grain offering shall be of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and one-tenth for each of the fourteen lambs. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offerings. Now, if that sounds familiar, a lot of that is just like we saw last week. It's just like we saw in chapter 28. Like, there's double the amount of lambs, double the amount of rams, and 13 young bulls. Well, it, it, was, it was one for the other celebrations, so it's like 13 times the young bulls and this goat as a sin offering. A constant reminder that something had to die in their place for the forgiveness that makes this feast possible. Now, if you have your paper Bible in front of you or if you've got a Bible app open, if you look at chapter 29, it it goes all the way down to verse 40. I'm not going to read you every single verse today, and here's why. For the rest of the chapter, almost the entire rest of the chapter, it's like every three verses are almost exactly the same. Sometimes it says goat, sometimes it says kid of the goats, but this is basically what each paragraph says all the way through. So that was the first day, 13 bulls, all that good stuff. On the second day, day two of the feast, present 12 young bulls, two rams, 14 lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offerings, and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, by their number, according to the ordinance. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offerings, with its grain offering, and their drink offerings. Okay, I gotcha, I gotcha. And as you keep going through, you'll see literally like almost a carbon copy of that for each of the days of this feast. And so when you come down to verse 20, you get to the third day. On the third day, present 11 bulls. On the fourth day, present 10 bulls. On the fifth day, present 9 bulls. On the sixth day, present 8 bulls. On the seventh day, present 7 bulls. So from the first to the seventh day of the feast, the, really the only difference is that it's counting down the number of bulls from 13 down to 7. Everything else is repeated almost word for word throughout that. So we've said a couple times in these last couple of chapters that a little bit of what you're looking for when you find a passage like this, for them on one hand, it's extremely practical, right? Tishri happens, we do our celebration, but then we don't think about it for a year. Tishri comes back around and the priests can double check. How many ephahs for the lamb? Okay, it's right here. Is that the same on the third day? Oh, yes, it is. It's right here. So it's very practical instruction. But one of the questions I'm always asking is like, if I read 40 verses and like 28 of them are like exactly the same as each other, why? What's different? So I dug into this a little bit. Why the countdown of the bulls? That seems like it has to have a reason, right? So I actually found a couple different solutions for this that I think are intriguing and I can't nail any of them to the wall. (laughs) But I'll share these with you because they do capture the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles. One of those is that if you add up all of the bulls that are a part of this feast, the total number is 70. And so the rabbis teach that 70 is the number that represents the nations of the world besides Israel. 
So that in one sense, what happens at the Feast of Tabernacles is that every day there is a representation of not only God's people at this feast, but of the entire world at this feast. That this celebration, this joyful time with God is meant to be something that the entire world can be invited to. Another really intriguing option is that if you go back to Genesis chapter 46, so this is when uh, Joseph is in Egypt. He's sort of reconciled with his brothers, and now Jacob and all of his sons and all of their family are moving into Egypt to avoid the famine. All right, so that's several hundred years before this, but it actually tells us back in Genesis that the total number of Jacob's family when they moved into Egypt was two score and ten. Seventy people. So one of the strongest arguments for this is that those bulls represent, right, if they're remembering how God brought them out of Egypt, that the bulls of this feast are a reminder that God didn't leave anybody behind. That all of his people who went into Egypt, he redeemed them out of Egypt again. And so while I can't tell you it's, it's this, it's that, a little bit of what you hear there is that there is a promise keeper in our God. There is a God who told them even before they went into Egypt that he would be faithful to bring them out. There is a God who is working so carefully through his people Israel and yet every step of the way we see that he has that invitation extended to anybody who would come to him on his terms. That he would desire for all of them to be a part of this feast. I've also wondered just a little bit because like you read this, this for them would be like seven straight days of Thanksgiving. So maybe they're just full. <laughs> like, man, we ate 13 bowls on day one. Like, it's been a week and I can't do 13. Anymore. Let's just cook seven today. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a practical part of it. But suffice to say, the whole thing wraps up into something that is extremely memorable every year. And I know we're a few months away from Thanksgiving, but reading this passage this week, it, it reminded me of a time when I was in college and home for the, home for the uh, Thanksgiving holiday, and one of my buddies was still living back at home, but his parents had moved away. So he had nowhere to go for Thanksgiving dinner. So my parents invited him over. And it was like that, I think that was the first time in my life that I had had like non-family at Thanksgiving. And Steins is still, uh, Andrew Steins, still one of my best friends. But it's amazing how that became like this memorable moment of celebration because he is constantly still, I mean, this is 20 years later now, talking about the food at that celebration. Like at his wedding, like two years ago, at his wedding, when they serve mashed potatoes, he says, but remember the mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving? <laughs> like, like, this was a good day, but man, that festival, when we had that feast, oh, that was good. <laughs> it just hit me, like, that is so much of what God is doing here. Like, you open a passage like this, you see a feast like this, and you start thinking, okay, Lord, what spiritual truth would you guide me with today? And it's there, but sometimes the spiritual truth is, I want you to have a party. I want you guys to enjoy being with me and enjoy being with each other. So let's do this for seven days. Like, like think about this. They have one day for atonement and forgiveness. One day. 
to ensure that they know you are right with God. He has forgiven you. And then an eight-day celebration that includes a seven-day feast. Now that we're all right with God, let's throw a party. Let's feast a feast with the Lord. And what's amazing about this is that you hear that, it's like, I don't know about you, but I'm on board. Like, I hear the trumpet, I reflect with God for 10 days, I celebrate the atonement, I rest in my forgiveness, let's throw a party. That sounds like the kind of God that I want to follow. So what's kind of crazy is they totally forget all of this for centuries. In fact, if you go through Israel's history in the Old Testament, we see how, like, in the time of the judges, everybody's doing whatever they want. In the time of the kings, the kings are doing whatever they want. And people are getting farther and farther off of God's path. Farther and farther away from God's standard. Farther and farther away from all of the things that he'd showed them in this law. All of the blessings that he'd laid out for them. And he warns them. And he calls them back. He says, return to me. I will abundantly pardon. And they want no part of him until ultimately he sends them into captivity. Out of the promised land again. Strangers again. And yet he doesn't leave them there. Even as he's warning them, he's telling them about how someday he will bring them out of captivity. Just like he brought them out of Egypt. And so as history rolls on, they finally get to this moment where God is bringing them back. They've rebuilt the temple, which is like the permanent version of the tabernacle. The brick and mortar version. They've rebuilt the temple, they're rebuilding the city, and they finally rebuild the wall. And they do all of this under the leadership of two men, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we get this amazing moment in the book of Nehemiah when the people have come back, again, out of captivity, and Ezra is reading them the law. Like he's reading them what we are reading. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it's crazy because, it, this, so this is Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm not going to show you the whole thing, but if you want to go read it later, it's literally the first day of Tishri, the seventh month. It is the Feast of Trumpets when Ezra begins to read them the law. And when people hear the law and realize every way that they have let God down, every way that they have fallen short, every negative thing that caused all of these problems in the first place and had them stuck in captivity, when they realize how deadly their sin really is, they weep. And then Ezra speaks up. The very priest who is reading them the law, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9, he says, For all the people wept, when they heard the words of the law, then Ezra said to them, go your way. E eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I love this moment. Because I don't know about you, but I have had times in my life when I come face to face with my own sin, face to face with how deep and how dark my own heart can be, and I've wept. And there's a piece of me that if it's up to me, I probably stay right there because I feel 
unforgivable, unlovable, whatever that is, the regret. And I'm sure God must be feeling that. He's probably feeling it even more because he's God. And yet when the people come to this moment, it's not because they're wrong. <laughs> they're right. All of that sordid history is real. And yet Ezra, who reads them the law, is not trying to grind them into dust with it. He's saying, whoa, actually, now that you realize it, guys, you've, you've turned from it. We're back. This is a day not for sorrow, but for joy. And so this is probably the most famous line from Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Have you heard that before? Like this is where it comes from. So imagine that whole month of Tishri. They're here on the first day of the month. They're supposed to hear that trumpet call, reflect on their sin, prepare for atonement, which God has promised. Because guess what? You're going to weep when you realize your sin, but there's actually strength that comes through this because God wants to forgive you. It is God's joy to forgive your sin. He's not reluctant about that. That was his plan. He's the one that set up this whole thing. It is his joy to forgive your sin, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. So they continue through this. I have to skip a few verses here. But basically, throughout the rest of the month, they keep reading the Bible. Like, they haven't heard this thing in decades and generations, and they're so amazed by what Ezra is reading them, they gather together and they keep reading. They want to know more about who is this God who atones? Who is this God who forgives? Who is this God that brought us back? And so it actually says that as they're sitting, they find written in the law that just a few days later, they're supposed to have a huge party. They realize that the Feast of Tabernacles is part of what God's giving them. And so it says the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths. They made tabernacles and sat under the booths. Now get this. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, hundreds of years later, since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. What? Think about what he just said. In Numbers 29, Joshua's alive right then. That's Joshua. He's hearing this reminder, Feast of Tabernacles, every year, because I'm going to forgive you guys, and then we're throwing a party. And he keeps it. And then it says, from him, until hundreds of years later, after captivity, after everything else, the children of Israel had not thrown this party? Why would you skip that? <laughs> like, what, what did they think about God that as they backed off from this, they don't want the atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles? I mean, that means guys like Samuel couldn't get the people to do it. That means guys like King David couldn't get the people to celebrate this celebration. Not since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, had the people of Israel celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles like this. But when they do, there's great gladness. Because there is the reminder that God is the God who redeems us out of our captivity to sin, out of our slavery, who forgives us and who wants to celebrate with us. That's the whole point of this party. That's the second invitation. Rejoice with the Lord as the forgiver of the feast. That's where the joy comes from. That's what makes the feast possible. That we rejoice with the Lord. When you think about when God created Adam and Eve, 
their first full day on earth, if they're made on the sixth, sixth day, their first full day is the day of rest. A day to just hang out with God. A Sabbath. And so here in the seventh month, a Sabbath month, that's what God wants. Let's hang out. I mean, even as you fast forward to like eternity, that is God's plan for you. That is why you are worth dying for. Despite all of the things that we do wrong, have done wrong, could do wrong, God says, yeah, but I love you. And I want to hang out with you forever. So I'll take the punishment. I'll pay the price. You come to the feast. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a memorial service right here in this room. I know some of you were here. Uh, for a friend of ours here at Horizon named Jim Statmiller. Now, I always knew him as Jim, and people kept calling him Squirrel. <laughs> because apparently, that was his nickname back from his radio days. And uh, so a lot of people, even if they hadn't met him in person yet, they knew, oh, Squirrel. Oh, yeah, I know Squirrel. And Jim was just the nicest guy. And it was, it was sort of surreal because you're, you're mourning over the loss of a friend, and yet hearing his friends talk about him, like not just his Christ-following friends, but just friends from all walks of life. As they were talking about Jim, you just kept hearing about his joy. And you know, maybe, maybe you know Jim from being down at City Gospel. He was there every week helping to organize the team, serving meals to those who are homeless, sharing, encouraging. Maybe you know him from out in the hallway here, always, every single week, volunteering, doing the parking. And, uh, and his joke every week was that it was a good day because there are no cars in the lake. All right. <laughs> I, I, I guess I have to agree with that, you know. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of day it would be if there was a, a car out in the lake, but it just always had a smile on his face, always trying to encourage you, always had another story to tell. And the refrain that kept coming through every story at his memorial service was he kept talking about how much he loved his church and how much he loved Jesus. And when you hear about his life before Jesus, like Jim had what most of us kind of wish we had. Like a ton of friends, everybody liked him, he's at every great party. If he's not throwing the party, he got invited somehow. And he would tell you that even though like all of that was fun, none of that was anything compared to the kind of party that God throws. The kind of forgiveness that God gives. And so he left all of that stuff behind for Jesus Christ. Like, if, if you want a party, you have got to meet the Lord. You're going to love it. And it is filled with joy. See, that is what God wants for us. And I know just even myself, I was inspired listening to that. Like, how awesome and how often do I just randomly tell people around me, you know what I love? I love my church and I love Jesus. And like, they can think whatever they want, but they're going to know that's a good feeling when I know that he loves me and I love him back. That's the kind of joy that God wants us to celebrate at this kind of a feast with him. And so when you come back to Numbers chapter 29, I'm going to skip the eighth day just for a moment. And you jump down to verse 38. Again, that reminder of a goat as a sin offering. Besides the regular burnt offering, it's grain offering and it's drink offering. And he says, these you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feasts besides your vowed offerings and your free will offerings. At your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. So Moses told the children of Israel everything. Like I skimmed some of it, but he had to repeat it all word for word, just as the Lord commanded Moses. 
And then it tells us the same thing. This last line is actually from Deuteronomy, speaking about the Feast of Tabernacles, that every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. See, that's because God is the founder of the feast. He is the forgiver of the feast. And one of the ways that we respond to his forgiveness is when we give back. Just like Jim did. When we give of our time. When we give of our finances. These were not things that were forced on them. We have all the, the, this many bulls and this many goats and this many rams and this much grain and this much. But these were just like, hey, can I give this too? Absolutely. That's a free will offering. Man, God has been so good to us this year. He, he's provided so much for us. We'd like to give more back. That's beautiful. The Lord loves it. That heart that comes from us, that's why the New Testament talks about joyful generosity. Not, not compulsion, but that we give what we decide in our hearts to give because we're so filled with love for our God. That our giving is joy and it's worship. And so we've talked about how this, this feast is a reminder for them of everything that God has done for them. But we also said that there's something here that is pointing forward. And so the third invitation, I think, is to follow the Lord as the fulfiller of the feast. So he's the founder of the feast, he's the forgiver of the feast, but he's also the fulfiller of the feast. In fact, you remember, we we touched on this in John chapter 1, right at the beginning, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So now let me come back to the eighth day of this celebration. It says in verse 35 that on the eighth day you shall have a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. One bowl. So we jump from seven all the way down to one. This is like things are slowing down. The seven days of feast are over. The eighth day is a little more calm, a little more quiet. One bowl. One ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bull, for the ram, and for the lambs, by their number, according to their ordinance. And God has taken the time in multiple books, just in the first five of the Old Testament, to make sure that he lays out this Feast of Tabernacles for us. And that eighth day is when everyone would gather at the tabernacle or in the temple and quietly reflect on the goodness and the joy that God had brought them. So if you fast forward a little bit in John's gospel, we actually get an example of one of the times that Jesus himself went to the temple to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So I'm picking up kind of in the middle of the story because I want you to see this. He actually shows up to the temple on the eighth day. It says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, when everyone's sitting quietly just like this, Jesus stood and cried out. So imagine in the middle of the temple when everyone's like, that was a good feast. I definitely did the right thing wearing the sweatpants to Jerusalem this year. Everyone's contemplative and prayerful and thankful and smiling. And Jesus shouts into the middle of the room. 
You can imagine every head turning toward him. You imagine Jesus, God in the flesh, says, this is it. This is the moment. There's something that I've got to tell them at the Feast of Tabernacles. They've been doing this for centuries, and now's the moment. I need everyone's attention. I'm going on the eighth day, and I am shouting it out. So what does he feel like he has to shout to make sure they hear it? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this, John explains, he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those who believe in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now that seems like a whole lot of brand new content all at once. And the reality is, the Holy Spirit doesn't get as much press as he deserves sometimes. And in this moment, Jesus is like, I don't want anyone to miss this. They won't understand it yet. It's not happening today, but we're still looking forward. And so what he gives them in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles is a promise of the Holy Spirit. And here's why. Since the dawn of time, since creation began, when God first put Adam on earth and he put Eve with him and he talked about how they would be fruitful and multiply and he looked down through the ages at the sacrifice that we were going to need at every one of us, his plan has always been to be with his people, to dwell with his people. And when everything broke in the garden, God did not scrap the project. He said, despite all of this, I am not giving up. I have a plan that I will be with my people and I'm going to make it that they always know that I am with them. And so we see examples in the wilderness like the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. The tabernacle itself in the center of the camp where people can point and say, see, see, the presence of God is still with us. And when they come into the promised land, then they get the brick and mortar version in the temple and they can point and they can say, see, see the very presence of God is with us. And when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, it says he tabernacled with us. He says of his own body, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days because now we don't need a tabernacle. I know that people in Israel are begging for a third temple, but we don't need another temple because now they could point to Jesus Christ himself. They could shake his hand. They could fist bump. They could hug. They could say, there he is. The very presence of God is with us in the flesh. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus says, it's going to be better for you that I leave. What? How could that possibly be better? But the way that he explains it to them is basically because right now Jesus is the presence of God in one place at a time. He says, when I leave, I will send the Spirit. He will dwell in every one of you. Which means that whether you are here this morning, whether you are out in the tent right now, looking at the sunshine and the water, wherever you are gathered with us today, we are united in one Holy Spirit that if you are a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ, he dwells in you. Now we can point to each other and say, see, the very presence of God is with us. 
In fact, I took a really nice picture of you. I know I didn't ask your permission to put this on the screen, but look at this. Don't you look good? You got all cleaned up for today, didn't you? You are the tabernacle. The New Testament even says, don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? As a follower of Christ, he dwells in you. He bears fruit through you. He gives you gifts to serve his kingdom. He is with you everywhere you go. So how are we going to celebrate that? Well, I'm just going to give you one phrase right out of this chapter. Let's keep a feast to the Lord. Let's not forget how much fun it is to be with each other and be with God. And sometimes these things just line up too perfectly. This was not the plan, but as I was prepping for this, it was way too obvious. And I'll bet at least half of you know what I'm about to say. Literally, this coming Saturday, there is a huge feast right here on Horizon's property that we are calling Family Fun Night. And guys, this is why we do stuff. It's not, it's, it's not just to keep you busy. It's not like you have nothing else to do this summer. But it's because we love and God loves when we hang out together. And I know that I've heard from some of you, especially coming through this season like COVID, that it feels difficult to feel connected. I know that there are enough of us here and we're across multiple services that, that sometimes you feel like, I'm here every week and I love it, but it's, it's hard to get connected. That's why we do stuff like this. It both reminds us of God's faithfulness. I mean, you can go back through the years. The fact that we even have a property to host a family fun night is because God has been good to us. But it's also looking forward at what we believe he's going to continue to do and to enjoy time with him and enjoy time with each other. So I'm going to be here. I've invited a couple neighbors. I would love it if you were there. There are literally going to be tents. There's going to be like a tent with some chicken wings and a, a tent with some chili. We have our own big tent out here if you want to think about the tabernacles like that. And you know, even if you can't make this one, you'll see things coming up on the calendar like comedy night. You know, this is why we're doing things like group studies all week long. Hey, let's be those people in Nehemiah that say, I saw something good in the Bible. What else is in there? And they all gather together to find what else God's telling them. You know, we've got this women's coffee and connect that we're doing from time to time. You can see all of the events. The idea is God doesn't just want us focused on him. He wants us focused on him with each other. So that's my pitch for you this week, because I'd love to see you back this Saturday. If, if you would register, then we'll make sure we got enough chicken for everybody. <laughs> and we will feast a feast with the Lord. Can I pray for you? God, it is just incredible, because I know that my heart can drag me down. But when I look into your word and you say, hey, that's the moment you just realize you need forgiveness, and I'm already planning to give it to you. God, it brings so much joy to my heart, to my mind, and I pray that it does to my brothers and my sisters in Christ here this morning, Lord, you have called us a family. And so as we celebrate with you, even as we walk out of this place today, Lord, seeing the sunshine through these windows, we just thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your forgiveness, and for your feast. In Jesus' name, amen.